Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Veterans Health Department broke hiring records last year for its health care workforce. Now the Veterans Health Administration is running a few of what it calls access sprints to make sure it's adding more appointment slots for veterans and using all those new people. VA needs more appointments to handle the wave of veterans enrolling for the first time. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more access sprints. What are they actually trying to do here, Jory? So the whole name of the game is for the Veterans Health Administration to expand the number of appointments that are available across a couple of areas of care. They're starting out by looking at cardiology, mental health, and gastroenterology. And the way that they're going to expand those appointments, the number of them is that they're doing things like offering night and weekend clinics and increasing the number of veterans that each VA provider sees every day. And we recently heard from Undersecretary for Health, Shreef Elnahal, on this. He briefed reporters about what these access sprints are going to look like. And he says that it's possible for VHA to expand appointments just because of the record hiring it saw last year. We now have the end strength to be able to increase productivity across the system and provide more care out of the direct care system. And Jory, do we have more details on that enforce that they were able to do. Give us some of the numbers. Yeah, well, to say that VHA crushed its hiring goals is a bit of an understatement. It in some areas, more than doubled its hiring goals. In total, VHA hired more than 61,000 employees in fiscal 2023, and that is exceeding one of its marks by about 8,000 hires. And so as a result of that, they're really recalibrating their hiring goals for this year, for fiscal 2024. And Elna Hall says you're actually not going to see that kind of major hiring that you saw last year. The goal this year is not going to be to increase total employees on board, except for very critical staffing areas like mental health. But pretty much for every other category of staff that we have, we think we have what we need to meet that demand. It's on us to increase productivity commensurate with our staffing level to make sure that we are able to provide accessible care. And again, that's Sharif Elnahal. He is the Undersecretary for Health. And Jory, besides more appointments, I mean, that's a physically getting people in for appointments to, I guess, VA or maybe to the external providers. With all these people, do they have fresh goals for healthcare delivery itself? Yeah. So beyond that capacity, which is the word they keep using again and again, they're also trying to drive down the time for veterans to get to those appointments. And that's something that they're still seeing some issues with here and there. We're going to focus on one of the sprints here, specifically on mental health. While they have since December of last year, they have seen week over week expansions of the number of mental health appointments that they have available. The time to get those appointments, uh, it has either held steady at about 21, 22 days, or in some cases it has increased that wait time. And so that's something that they still have to work on. The way that Elna Hall put it is that they are increasing their capacity to offer these appointments, but at the same time, the demand is going up and it's going up at exactly the same pace here. And so that's why it's kind of a dead heat in some cases. And so Elna Hall says that VHA is looking to boost this employee productivity, as he puts it, but also trying to make sure that they're not going to hit a point where they reach burnout. The reason that we're calling them access sprints is because we're not sure what within that discrete effort will be sustainable into the future. 
some things won't be sustainable because we're basically just putting more appointments into the same clinics. And in some cases, we've been able to increase staff. In some cases, we've had level staff. And so our question becomes, what's sustainable for the end frontline worker who has to bear that increased load? And we're still figuring that out. Earlier, we mentioned the wave of people signing up for VA for the first time. There's a number on that, too. Yeah, let's look at the demand side of things, because that's really eye-catching. So under the PACT Act, which was passed in the summer of 2022, under those authorities, which generally speaking, this is expanding eligibility for VA health care and benefits. And since that legislation was signed by President Biden, 100,000 new veterans have used that specific PACT Act authority to enroll in VA health care for the first time. And that's out of a larger pool of folks, 500,000 during that same period of time that in general enrolled in care, PACT Act or no PACT Act. And that's a huge wave of people. This is a good thing. VA wants to maintain that. This They want high enrollments under the PACT Act. That was the whole point. But they still need to deal with this new wave of people and deal with this new wave of demand. And so what we're going to see for this year for fiscal 2024 is that they're going to see, again, under this PACT Act authority, 21,000 additional veterans sign up for VA health care for the first time, specifically under this PACT Act authority. And when you look further out under 10 years, that's going to look more like 84,000 veterans. This is something that VA is keeping its eye on because as enrollment numbers go up, these veterans are getting older. They're going to need more acute care, and they are just trying to uh, stay on top of things knowing that's going to be the case. All right. And then Elna Hall said there's sort of a geographic element to this. I mean, it's not even growth across all of their centers, is it? Yeah, and that's something that is just growing as a trend and coming into focus more and more. What The way he put it is that VA is seeing asymmetric growth in the places where veterans are enrolling in this care. And to give you a sense of where exactly we're talking about, we're talking about mostly the southeastern U.S., so parts of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, most of Florida, and some other places too, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, San Diego, and Chicago. So not not any one particular place in pockets, but this is a nationwide footprint, and so they have to make sure that in these hot spots, the staffing is commensurate with that demand. Sure, and God forbid Congress would ever let them rearrange their network to serve the veterans where they actually are. That was tried a couple of years ago and crashed in flames. Yeah, well, that was something we saw under the Air Commission that never took off. But again, VA is adamant that they have to be where the veterans are and meet that demand wherever they live. Well, there's always hope. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating 
and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.